Well, as we mentioned last week, Galatians is actually a letter not to just one church or one city. There's not a city of Galatia. Galatia is an area. And Paul is writing to a group of churches in this area, many of which he was the one who planted. He had gone to this area of Galatia, specifically the southern part of Galatia, which would be in modern-day Turkey, and he had, he had been involved in doing the work of evangelism and seeing people be saved, put their faith in Jesus, and then discipling them to actually take charge over the church. And so they, he planted churches all over the place there. And after Paul left, do, left those churches that he had planted, there came behind him a group of men who we know now as Judaizers. And we call them Judaizers because what they believed was that to be saved, you didn't just need to believe in Jesus. You didn't just need to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that He died for your sins, that He rose from the dead. But you needed to believe all that about Jesus and you needed to keep the law of Moses. Specifically, you needed to be circumcised. Now, of course, that's very bad news for grown-up men, that you'd have to be circumcised before you could become a Christian. But it was also bad news for anybody who knew how much of a burden the law of God could be, how how difficult it was to try to keep the law of God. In essence, these churches in Galatia, these people in Galatia, they were people that were Gentiles, they weren't Jews. And, and so for them, this whole idea of switching from a Gentile culture completely to some new sort of Jewish culture was overbearing for them. And for them, it was like, well, how can this even happen? And yet, that's what these Judaizers were doing. They were saying, listen, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to be a Jew first. You've got to become Jewish first. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the law of Moses. And then you believe in Jesus as the Messiah and everything will be okay. That's the only way you're going to ever get to a place where you might be saved. And so Paul is, as we saw last week, pretty ticked off about this. That he, he uses some pretty harsh words in this letter, some pretty intense words in this letter because he, he knows that what these people are actually doing, what these Judaizers are actually doing is they're undermining the very gospel of God. And so that's why he says to him, as we read last week, if anybody teaches any other gospel than what you heard from us, even if we teach you any other gospel than what we first taught to you, let him be anathema. Let him be damned. Let, it be, you know, let them go to hell if that's what they want. But you stick to the true gospel. Now these, these Judaizers, these, these, really, <laughs> these, these people who were opponents of the gospel, these people bringing a false gospel, they knew they couldn't just attack what Paul taught. They knew that Paul was a, a man who uh, was very clever, was very astute at what he said, had a good reputation for being, uh, being a student of the Scriptures. And so they didn't just attack what he said. They started off by attacking him. They attacked him personally. That's why Paul starts the letter off in the first two verses talking about that his, his apostleship, his call to be sent by God, to be God's representative with the gospel, that that apostleship didn't come through men, but it came through Jesus directly. And so what we're going to see here in, in the rest of chapter 1 is Paul basically dealing with these accusations against him. These things that they were saying, hey, Paul's like this or Paul's like that. He's dealing with these accusations. And so I want you guys to go ahead and drop down to verse 13. We'll start there and see the first accusation. The first sort of accusation that the Judaizers are making towards Paul is they're saying, you know, Paul really doesn't respect Judaism. He doesn't respect the teachings of Judaism, which are the foundation for for who the Messiah would be. And Paul's going to answer that. Paul says in essence this, in verse 13, he says, guys, listen, the ones he's writing to, he says, you know of my former conduct in Judaism. 
He says, you know how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Now, here's what Paul, back then he was called Saul, here's what he basically did. He knew that the biggest enemy of the religion that he was trying to spread, of the religion of Judaism that he was trying to promote, the biggest enemy was the sect called Christians. These group of people who believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that he should be followed and even worshipped as God the Son. Paul knew that. Saul, when he was still called Saul, Saul knew that this was the biggest hindrance. And so you know what his, his goal was? To wipe the church out. The Bible says this in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verses 1 and 3, it says, Now Saul, that's Paul before he was Paul, was consenting to Stephen's death. And at that time, a great persecution rose up against the church. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, because that's where the church met, was in houses, and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. I mean, Paul was so zealous for Judaism. Paul was so zealous for, for the teachings of Judaism that he was actually thinking, you know what? I'm not going to let anything get in the way for me continuing to promote this religion that I believe is of God. I'm going to make sure that these Christian guys are actually chucked in jail because they're getting in my way. That's how zealous he was. Now he's saying this in answer to the Judaizers saying, oh, Paul doesn't have any respect for Judaism. He had great respect for Judaism. He had great respect for the traditions of his father, as he says. In fact, he says in verse 14, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Now at this point, it's very important for us to understand something. We need to understand, when we talk about Judaism, we are not saying that is equal to what the Old Testament teaches. There's a distinction between Judaism, when it's mentioned here, and what we would call an Old Testament faith or a, a, a faith under the Old Testament. There's a difference between those two. Judaism is, put, is based on, as Paul says here, the tradition of the fathers. Now, tradition by itself isn't bad, but we need to understand the difference between tradition and truth. Great big difference. Truth is, listen, truth is that which God reveals about himself, that which God reveals about his plan for mankind. That's truth. Truth flows from who truth is. Jesus identified himself as the truth. Truth flows from the very person of God. And so when we talk about truth, we're talking about that which God reveals about himself. Tradition is simply a perspective of that truth. Sometimes it's a wrong perspective, sometimes it's a right perspective, but that's all it is. It's a perspective on the truth. So you can't automatically equate truth and tradition. That doesn't mean all traditions are, are wrong. Paul talks about uh, keeping the traditions that have been handed down to you, not through Judaism, but through the early church. But here's the, here's the reality. Jesus talked about when truth becomes dangerous. He said this in Mark chapter 7, verse 13. He says, you are making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. And many such things you do. Tradition becomes dangerous when we exalt tradition, that is, our perception of the truth above the truth itself. And so Paul is saying, listen, I was totally zealous for Judaism. I was zealous than any of you. I advanced, I pioneered, I cut through, is what that word really means, in, in areas that you guys never even dreamed of. So much so that I was killing Christians for this, chucking them in jail. I consented to Stephen. I was glad when they stoned Stephen to death. But I realized 
I was zealous for tradition, not for truth. One of the things, guys, that hinders us from being set free by the gospel is our zeal for tradition. Being zealous for a good thing is good always, Paul says. The Bible says, Paul writes this, I think, to, to Timothy, where he talks about, maybe it's to Titus, but he talks about that God desires to create a work or create a people. He is calling aside a people who are zealous for good works. Being zealous is a good thing. Oh, that we'd have more zeal. I, to be honest, I get bogged and we're so chilled out all the time. You know, I wish we were a little bit more zealous for God, a little bit more passionate about our Creator and our Savior. But here's the deal. Zeal for traditions oftentimes keeps people from seeing the truth. And Paul's saying, listen, it wasn't that I disrespected Judaism. It's that I realized that the perspective, the traditions of Judaism weren't always equal with truth. And when the truth, <laughs> when the truth found me, when the truth confronted me, it set me free and I'm no longer zealous for that. Well, then he goes on to say, continuing to talk about a story in verse 15, he says, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's room and called me by grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Now, if any of you guys have the NIV, you know, it's, it's, it's actually, it actually said, translates this a little bit better, the last part of verse 16, where it says that uh, I did not immediately consult with any other person. That's Paul's idea there. He's saying, listen, you know, after I... Uh, after I was confronted by Jesus, we'll talk about that in a little bit, he says, I didn't go and say, hey, I'll go talk to somebody else. I'll go talk to these apostles and see if this is really the right thing. He didn't do that. Now, that's important because it has to do with, with what God showed Paul and his authority as an apostle and even specifically his authority to bring forth what the gospel is. But he's saying, listen, I, I, I didn't do this. Now, their accusation to Paul, this is, brings up another accusation. They're saying, the Judaizers are saying, here's what Paul did. Paul went and he learned what the, what the apostles had said and he twisted it. He twisted what the apostles said so that he could you know, form his own sort of religion so he could get people to follow after him. Paul's going, that's just not true. When Jesus confronted me, when I, when I actually got saved, he says, I didn't even go and talk to these guys. I didn't immediately go up and, 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 and converse with them. I, I went somewhere else. In fact, he says in, in verse 17, nor do I go up to Jerusalem to those who are apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned to, to Damascus. Paul says, listen, my first step was not to go spend some time under the apostles and, and learn what they learned. What I learned, I learned directly from Jesus. So they're saying, listen, here's what you did. Their, their accusation is, you just took what the apostles did and twisted it. And Paul's going, how could I have done that when I didn't even go to the apostles after I got saved? I spent three years apart from all those guys. Now they bring up the, the next accusation. The, the other accusation that Paul addresses is the accusation of the Judaizers that, you know, Paul... <coughs> Um, I lost my place, sorry. <laughs> what is the other accusation that they made against Paul? Oh yeah, basically that Paul uh, was a person uh, that hadn't had any real change in his life. That Paul was just a guy looking for an opportunity, that there wasn't a real change in his life. Well, that's the most ridiculous accusation. Look what Paul says in verse 18. It says, then after three years, Paul says, I went to Jerusalem to see Peter and I remained with him 15 days, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, Paul is so concerned that they understand what he's saying that he does in verse 21 something that you wouldn't do lightly. He takes a solemn oath. 
This was a, a huge deal to do. When he says, now concerning the things which are right to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. He's basically saying, may God strike me dead if I'm saying something wrong. May you throw me out as a false prophet if I'm making any of this stuff up. Is basically what he's saying. Now it's interesting because in Paul saying this, he's saying, again, listen, I spent very limited time with the apostles when I finally did go see them three years later. And in fact, he says, I only spent with them, I spent 15 days with Peter, I didn't see anybody else but James, the Lord's brother. Now, here's what we read again in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 28, you don't have to turn there, but look it up later. It says, when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the, the, the disciples, but they were afraid of him and did not believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and Saul was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out. Now, now, the idea there is that after the three years that he spent, not with the apostles, not with anybody else sort of teaching him these things, but just learning from Jesus, after that time, he went back to Jerusalem, and he only spent about 15 days, and he was kind of coming and going. And he only really hung out with Peter a little bit, trying to sort of see what Peter said about these things. And so there was probably time for Peter to know, to suss out, is Paul preaching a false gospel? Is Paul making these things up? Has anything really happened in Paul that's changed? <coughs> And, and the, the fact is, these guys were so afraid of Paul that when he came, they thought, we don't want this guy coming to our meetings. We know what he did three years ago. But Barnabas, we love Barnabas, don't we? The son of encouragement. Barnabas goes, no, 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 check this out. This guy's been radically changed. Some radical stuff's happened in his life. And so Paul spent that time in Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting because it, here's what it says next. It says that <clears throat> Paul says in verse 21, he says, afterwards, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And he says, and I was unknown by face of the churches of Judea who were in Christ. But, verse 23, they were hearing only, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which, which he once tried to destroy. Now, don't miss what's happening here. When Paul recants the story, which is backed up by Luke in the book of Acts, Paul's saying this, listen, they were afraid of me. I, they didn't recognize me. They didn't recognize me as, as anybody but just that guy who used to kill Christians. But they definitely recognized the gospel that I preach. So in other words, what Paul's saying is they can accuse me of twisting things. They can accuse me of, of changing things. They can accuse me of having a life that didn't change. But there's testimony historical evidence for me. You can go back and ask the guys in Jerusalem, send them a note if you don't believe me, and you will see that these guys will say, yeah, he preached the same gospel as the apostles, even though he didn't learn it from the apostles. They will say, hey, that guy who used to kill Christians, he's actually our brother now. I mean, we, we, we have fellowship with this guy. You can see the change in his life. And that's why it says in verse 24, and they glorified God in me. Now guys, listen. The Bible says this in Jude, verse 3. This is also the half-brother of Jesus. Jude wrote this. He said, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, that is, the same way we're all saved, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting to contend earnestly for the faith. That is not just believing, but what we are believing. The faith, which was, notice past tense, once for all delivered to the saints. Now, when Jude writes about the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, when the apostles talk about the gospel, when Paul here writes about the gospel, he's talking about the basis of truth 
that our faith is based upon. The foundation of truth our faith is based upon. Our faith is based upon. And what Paul's saying here is he's saying, listen, these Judaizers are, are trying to say, I preach a different gospel than the apostles. I don't. They're trying to say, I got the information from the apostles and I twisted. I didn't. They're trying to say, my life hasn't changed, but it has. The reality is, I've brought to you the same gospel that's been preached altogether. And I would say with Jude, contend for the faith. Make sure they are teaching actually the faith. It's not me who's teaching a false gospel, Paul would say. It's these guys. It's these Judaizers. It's these guys who are adding to the gospel. Now, here's a reality. Paul is wanting to not just deal with their accusations, but he's wanting to affirm something. He's wanting to affirm what we see in verses 11 and 12, the reality that it wasn't from man that he got taught these things, but from Jesus Christ himself. Notice what he says, verse 11. He says, but I make known to you, brethren, or or bros, I want you to know that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. Literally, it's not according to a human standard. In other words, Paul's saying, listen, the gospel I preach, I want to make it really clear, it's got nothing to do with the traditions of my father. The gospel I've preached to you is not something that I just simply learned from men. Now, Paul's not saying, he's not saying that it's not good to learn from men. He's not saying that people shouldn't be taught. Obviously, Paul would write to the church in Rome, how can people hear unless somebody preaches? But here's the reality. The reality is, Paul is saying, listen, I didn't learn it from men. I was taught this directly through Jesus or from Jesus. Now, I want you to keep your finger in Galatians and turn to Acts chapter 9. We're going to flip back and forth the rest of the morning from Galatians 1 to Acts chapter 9. So keep your finger in both places. So keep your finger in Galatians. Turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. Here's where we read again Luke's account of Paul's story. He says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, that would be the high priest of the Jews, and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, that's anybody following Jesus as the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, it's important to recognize what Paul's doing. What Paul's doing is he is completely, 100% motivated by tradition and human authority. Before Paul's converted, his motivation, his mode of ministry is completely based on the traditions of men and the authority of men. And so he says, you know, I'm going to get authority from the high priest and I'm going to have these guys arrested. I'm going to stick to the traditions of my father. I'm going to say what anything that they say has been revealed can't be revealed because it goes against what we say is right. Everything that he does is based on the authority of men, but something radical happens. Look at verse 3 of Acts 9. It says, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Now, go back to the Galatians for a second. In Galatians 1, Paul says this in verse 12. He says, For I, never, I, I, I neither received it, speaking of the gospel, from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through, notice, listen, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus revealed himself to Paul. Check out verse 4. 
going back to Acts chapter 9. In verse 4 it says this, Then Paul, or Saul, fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, guys, here's the first thing that Jesus had to do with Saul. Jesus had to go to Saul and literally knock him off his high horse and confront him about his religion. Do you know the thing that keeps us from having a relationship with God, the thing that keeps most people from having a real relationship with God is their religion? It's ironic, isn't it? We believe the traditions of men. We believe the things that people tell us so strongly. We're so assured of the resources we've picked that we relate to God through those resources instead of relating to God through Jesus Christ himself. Again, as I said earlier, tradition itself isn't bad. Some traditions are good. Some perspectives that the church has had over the years are good. The bottom line is, when we put that tradition above the truth himself, he has to confront us, he has to knock us off our high horse and say, what are you doing, man? What are you doing? And I love the way he says this too. I love the fact that Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Not why are you persecuting my people, why are you persecuting me? What is it about me that you have such a hard time with that it motivates you to kill these people, to throw them in prison? And of course, Paul says in verse 5, he said, Well, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. You guys know what a goad is? It's that little metal tip that goes on a long stick that shepherds and cattlemen use to poke their sheep and their cattles. When they don't do what they're supposed to do, you know, not going the direction they do, jab, poke, the sheep goes where it's supposed to go, right? That's the goad. And Jesus is saying, you know, Saul, it's pretty hard for you to kick against the goad. You know what that tells us? It tells us even before this day, Jesus was poking, poking, poking at Saul's heart. Come on, dude, why are you persecuting me? Why are you killing Christians? Why are you so zealous for tradition? Poke, 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 poke. And Saul's going, knock it off, leave me alone, knock it off, leave me alone. Hate these people. Getting them in the way. I'm trying to advance in Judaism. Back off. Poke, poke, poke. That happens to us, doesn't it? In fact, some of you guys are here today, and you're, you're even as I speak, you're, here, you're feeling the poke, poke, poke. And you're going, oh, I don't like that. Can't you just talk about love? Can't you just talk about how lo- lovely it is to, to know Jesus? and to, Can't we all hold hands and sing kubaya? That's more comfortable. It is more comfortable, but it's not more liberating. Sometimes, guys, we have to be in that place where Jesus does that goad, poke, poke to get our attention. This is what happened to Saul. Saul had to be in a place where Jesus had to say to him, it's me that you're kicking against. It's me that you're persecuting. It's me that you're resisting. You see, what what Jesus did for Paul was, Jesus didn't just expose Paul, listen, you're going down a religious road that leads to nowhere, that resists what I want to do. But Jesus also had to say, listen, Paul, the reason you have wrong ideas about God is you have wrong ideas about me. Remember what we talked about last week? The gospel is Jesus. Who he is, what he's done, what he's going to do. The gospel is Jesus. 
And we're not just, when we resist the gospel, when we resist what God has revealed about himself, we're not just resisting information, we're resisting Jesus. And you know what? He loves us so much that even when we resist, he still goes, poke, poke, poke. Come on now. It's hard for you to, to kick against these goads, to say, knock it off, leave me alone. But when Jesus says this to Saul, what happens? In verse 6, it says, So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I love this because what you have happening here is Saul, in an instant, is being transformed. Jesus told Nicodemus, a man who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, a man who was, as Jesus called him, the teacher of Israel, a leader of God's people. Jesus told this man, when this man came and said to him, okay, Lord, we know that you must be from God because no one could do what you could do. And before he can even ask the question he wants to ask, Jesus says to him, you must be born again. Amen. You know, I'm glad that you recognize me as the Messiah. I'm glad you recognize me as being from God, but you must be born again. Something supernatural has to happen in you. You need to be transformed both in a moment and over the process of time. You must be born again. What happened to Paul on the road to Damascus was when Jesus literally knocked him off his high horse, confronted him about his religion, revealed to him who he was, Paul was born again. He was made alive spiritually, something supernatural that only God can do. Jesus transformed him. Now, why is this important? Because this is actually what Paul's talking about when he says, hey, no one taught me these things. It came to me by the revelation of Jesus Christ. He said, literally, Jesus showed up, knocked me off my horse, said, what are you doing? Stop persecuting me. And Paul just said, oh God, forgive me. Lord, what must I do? Interesting, if you look at Acts chapter 9 and you look at verse 15, the Lord will say to Ananias, who God's gonna, who, who's God's going to use to help Paul take his first steps or Saul take his first steps as a believer, the Lord said to Ananias, go for Saul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. And I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. That the Lord says, listen, Ananias, I know you're freaking out about this guy because you heard what he does to Christians, but I'm telling you, I have changed him. And I'm going to use him to reach the world. I'm going to use him in ways that are going to blow people away. Now, there's something more, though, to what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 1 that we need to see. Something more than just his personal testimony. And that has to do with what we call the doctrine of revelation. Not the book of revelation, which is all about Jesus, which is, is a good thing. We'll study that down in the future. But the doctrine of revelation, which is basically this. It's, it's how God has revealed himself to man. And there's two categories when it comes to the doctrine of revelation. One is called general revelation and one is called uh, specific revelation. Or you might say one is called objective revelation and one is called subjective revelation. And we'll talk about those. Now, when we talk about revelation, when we talk about how God's revealed himself, there's, there's lots of ways that God's done it, but there's, there's basically four ways that God's revealed himself objectively. What I mean by objectively is I mean in a way that you can, you can test it. You can, uh, you, can, you can measure it in some way. You can, you can observe it. 
It can be tested. It can be scrutinized. That's what I mean by objective. Four ways. Check this out. The first way you see in the, in the most inner box is through creation, to the fact that God has made the world. The Bible says this in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Creation. Creation testifies that there's a creator. Sarah, my wife, was telling me um, a few weeks back that she had some kids in Sunday school that weren't part of our church, just some kids that sort of came with friends and were unchurched kids. And, and uh, they, I mean, these kids were maybe 10 years old, 9 and 10 years old. They're like, why do you know there's a God? How do you know there's a God? And it was really sort of like, wow, they're like just little kids and they're already so cynical, but they're like, how do you know there's a God? And, and, and really, people ask that question all the time. How do you know there's a God? Well, let me ask you this question. You're in this building. How do you know this building had a builder? How do you know? How do you really know it didn't just kind of appear? How do you know the principle just didn't will it to happen? How do you know this building had a builder? Do you know how you know? It's here. Every building has to have a builder. Every creation has to have a creator. It's amazing to me that people who don't believe in a creator will still, try to, will still describe creation in terms of design. Now, we'll see that the platypus was designed to do this. Designed by whom? Well, nobody, just by accident. Then how do you use the word designed? Because there's no other way to describe it. When there's intricate, specific detail, it shows there's a design, which shows what? There's a designer. Creation testifies that there's a God. It's not a sufficient uh, test- testimony for us to know everything about God, but it does testify about God. That's objective revelation. The, the uh, 17th century scientist, Johannes Kepler, you know, he, was the, he, was a, he studied space and, and, and talked about planetary motion and stuff. He said this, he called science this, he called it thinking God's thoughts after him. That's what he called science. When you observe the creation and you see, whoa, that's how this works. That's how this came to be. That's why this thing does this. What are you doing? Are you, are you discovering things that nobody else knows? No, you're only thinking God's thoughts after him. You're only recognizing what God's already done, you see. That's what science is. It's, it's, it's a recognition. It's looking at the created order. The fact there's an order we can look at is evidence that there's a creator. So that's the, that's the first thing, creation. The second thing is conscience, which would be the second box, you see, conscience. Now, Paul says this in, in Romans chapter 2. Paul says, When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these already not having the law are a law to themselves, who show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. What does that mean? It means this. When people who don't know this is God's requirements still do those things that that fit that bill, what are they testifying of? They're testifying of the fact that we have within us a moral ability. Have you noticed how how all of us, and all of us do this, all of us set standards for our own lives. They could be radically different standards, radically different standards, but we all set a standard for a life. And those standards of morality, they all have to do with justice, they all have to do with relationship, they all have to do with right and wrong. All of us set a standard. But you also notice this, no matter what standard we set for a life, we never measure that standard. Ever notice that? We always have to keep lowering the standard or changing the standard so that we can somehow try to measure up. And we still never measure up to the standard. Why? Because of our nature. Our conscience 
And the word conscience simply means with knowledge. It's like a window to our soul. And that window lets the light of God come in. Now, the dirtier that is, the less light comes in. But even the dirtiest soul has light coming in and thinks, ooh, I should probably do this or oh, I should probably do that. As the phrase goes, there's honor even among thieves. The reality is we have a conscience that tells us right and wrong. That is part of an objective standard that God says, listen, I'm real. I'm real. You're made in my image. The next thing we see is prophets, or what we, call, we might call prophetic revelation. The reality that God has spoken through men. Listen to this. 2 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says this. Peter writes, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, whether you believe the Bible's God's word or not really doesn't matter at this point. What you need to understand is that the way the early church, the first followers of Jesus, looked at the Bible was, they looked at it as the very revelation of God. The first followers of Jesus looked at the Old Testament scriptures as that which God spoke through holy men. They saw it not as tradition, but truth. They saw it not as something that just that they were inspired about. It wasn't just inspiration. It was revelation, that which God said. Notice it's not open to private interpretation either. You guys have heard me say this a hundred times. You're probably sick of it, but I'll say it again. There is only one right interpretation of this, of this book. There's only one intended interpretation of this book. I don't always get it, but that's, there is just one, which is why we try to be students, why we try to be humble about what's actually going on here. But the first followers of Jesus looked at the, the scriptures and said, that's how God says who he is and what he's doing, Revelation. So that's the prophets, all right? Now, notice, not in the box, but in sort of encircling all that is Jesus. Now, the, the author of Hebrews says this about Jesus, quoting the psalmist. He says, in the volume of the book, it's written of me. And if you want to sum up the scripture in one word, that one word would be Jesus. The Old Testament looks back to Jesus in a concealed way, in a shadow way. The New Testament reveals Jesus and who he is in a clear way. The author of Hebrews writes this, listen to this. Hebrews chapter one. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the Father by the prophets, remember, revelation, not just inspiration, has in these last days Spoken. Who has? God has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. Revelation, not just inspiration, but revelation, not just tradition, truth comes through what God has said through Jesus. Who God revealed Jesus to be, who Jesus had said that he was and what he did, that is the ultimate measure of all truth. That is gospel. Now, this is important. It's important, guys, because we so often, I think, make the mistake of treating Christianity or, or treating religion as that just which, which, which we feel we should do. You know, we, we say it to each other. We think, well, okay, we want to be tolerant of each other, and so we say, well, you know, if that works for you, great. That works for you. If that's good for you, great. That's good for you. And we tend to treat all sort of things as relative. 
but that's not how the scripture treats things. That's not how those who follow Jesus treat things. That's not how Jesus treated things. Jesus talked about that there was such a thing as revelation. Now this ties back into what Paul's saying in Galatians 1 in a very important way. Because here's the reality, guys. God chose Paul in a very unique way to unpack the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done to us. God, God used John, for sure. Uh, God used Peter, for sure. God used James, for sure. God used the other authors of Scripture, for sure. But there's a very unique thing that God did with Paul. That when he spoke, he, when, when, when he was, what, what was revealed to Paul, I should say, what was revealed to Paul was to be set aside with the Scriptures. In fact, you know what? Peter said this. The Apostle Peter wrote this, and I think it's also, it's a 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, it's 2 Peter 3.16, where Peter says, talks about how some of the things that, that Paul says are hard to understand, and how evil men will twist those things for their own desire. He says those evil men will do that as they do with the rest of the Scripture. You know what that means? It means Peter saying, what Paul writes is equated to Scripture. Now, guys, that's so important because I'll tell you what, one of the things that, that, that liberal scholars try to throw in the face of Christians is, man, you really don't follow Jesus, you follow Paul. If you follow Jesus, you'd be more like us, you see. Because Paul, that, he, Paul was just, you know, he was obsessed with Judaism and, and Paul was, you know, he, he really didn't, didn't have a changed life. He was just feeling guilty because he had persecuted Christians and so he tried to sort of take over Christianity for himself. Sounds pretty familiar to the Judaizers of old. But here's the reality. The reality is the first followers of Jesus, those who walked with Jesus for three and a half years, guys like Peter, recognized that when Paul wrote an epistle, it had weight. It was God revealing himself. And Paul says, listen, I'm not apologizing for this because it's not me. I didn't choose to do this. I didn't choose to be an apostle. I didn't choose to have this revelation. In fact, Paul would say about himself in 2 Corinthians, he would say, this is why the Lord allowed me to have a thorn in the flesh, which I personally believe was the problem that he had with his eyes that we'll see later on in Galatians. A thorn in the flesh. He had this nasty sort of, you know, where his eyes were diseased and, and, and tradition tells us that they were like, like leaking and they were just, just repulsive to look at. And he had this horrible condition. And in this horrible condition, the Bible says in, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, he prayed, God, please take this away from me. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. And, and the Lord revealed to Paul, Paul, here's the deal. I'm giving you the sword in the flesh, lest you be exalted among measure because of the revelation that I've given to you. You're going to have to suffer more than any of the other guys. And Paul did. Why? Because this is the why. Listen, Jesus wants us to know him. Jesus wants us to know who he is, what he's done, what he's doing. He doesn't want us to guess. He wants to lay that out. Guys, when we talk about the gospel and revelation, we're talking about the reality that the gospel is the final revelation of God. It's God saying, listen, I've spoken times past to the prophets, but now I'm giving my final word until I set up my kingdom on earth, and that is, it's Jesus. He's it. And that's what he revealed through Paul. And that's why Paul is writing to these Galatians and saying, listen, don't let these guys trip you up. Don't let these guys fool you into a different Jesus or a different gospel. Because the Lord 
has revealed these things in a way that everyone can recognize, yep, this is the gospel. Peter would say the same sort of thing. Because as Paul had this experience where he was taught by Jesus and confronted by Jesus, so were Peter and the other apostles who were chosen. And they didn't just talk about things that were their ideas. They talked about what they saw. Check this out. In 2 Peter 1.16, Peter writes this, For we do not follow cunningly devised fables. In other words, we're not making this stuff up. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of His majesty. We just told you what we saw. John said the same thing in his epistle, 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. He said, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. He says, listen, I'm not, again, talking to you about ideas. We actually handled God incarnate. John could say, I laid my head upon his chest. We embraced and kissed every time we saw each other. I heard his voice. I saw him do the miracles. I ain't making this stuff up. And I'm willing to die to prove it. I saw him resurrected. I'm willing to die to prove it. Why? Because, not because the apostles, but because God wants you to have a revelation of himself. You see. Can you understand why Paul's so passionate about saying, if anybody says anything else, let him be damned? Because we can't know God except through what he reveals. Now, this is what we mean by objective revelation, that which God has given us. He's given us creation. We can study creation. It's called science. He's given us a conscience. We can acknowledge through human experience how we wrestle with moral issues. He's given us the, the prophets, the scriptures. We can say, yeah, we can go back and say that the, the, the scriptures are trustworthy. He's given us Jesus. We can look in history and go, yeah, historical figure, died for the sins, rose from the dead. We can test these things out. In fact, if you want to see the evidence... Starting in the first Friday of November, Lord willing, we're going to do a seven-part series called The Fingerprints of God on a Friday night in this room about why we know the Bible is inspired, why we believe the Bible is inspired, the fingerprints of God. So keep an eye out for more information about that. But the reality is he's given us this as objective revelation. Now, what about subjective revelation, or some people might call that illumination? What's that? It's basically when God works graciously in us by his Holy Spirit to see these things. Check this out. Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church. He says, but God has revealed these things to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God, and no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Paul wanted to make sure that the Corinthian church understood, listen, this is the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal the gospel to you, to reveal who Jesus is to you, to reveal Christ even crucified to you. And it is a work the Spirit has to do, man. You can't make this happen. You can't just intellectual, uh, intellectualize yourself to be saved. God has to open your eyes to the reality of these things. Oh, you might understand some facts, but you can't have your eyes open unless the Holy Spirit does a work. Jesus himself said this in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. He said, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Guys, let me tell you something. On the authority of who the Bible says Jesus is, it's Jesus' will to reveal himself to you today 
Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. God wants you to know him. He wants you to know him. All of this is not about us having a a group of people who get together and have some food and make each other feel better and comfort each other. That's important, but all this is not about this. All of this, all that we're doing here this morning, all that we do as a church is about, listen, it's about the gospel, the good news that God wants a relationship with you and he died to make it happen. He became a man and he died on the cross and he rose from the dead to make that happen. It's not a pipe dream. It's not a religious act. It's reality. It's reality. It's what God's revealed. The gospel-centered church is this. The gospel-centered church is a church that desires to see God glorified through what is revealed about himself. It's a church that desires to see God show himself to and through his people. That's what we desire to be.